Thank you, Tim, very much. I appreciate your last words, not to underestimate the power of a godly mother. Uh, this is Tim's first time for you, for some of you, but it's his last Sunday here already. Tim uh, has taken a brand new job in the cities with Bethel University, and uh, he's really excited about that. So we, we hope that we see Tim visit us from time to time. So uh, thank you, Tim, for sharing. Thank you for all of you who participated with Team World Vision as well. Now, if you'll give me just one or two more minutes, then I'll dismiss the bridge kids. But I want moms to hear this before any mom walks out. Um, so let me just say to all you moms uh, who are here today, happy Mother's Day. And I, uh, I, I fully admit that you are not appreciated enough. And this was suggested in an article uh, in Forbes magazine. Maybe you uh, have heard of it. Uh, every year, salary.com does an annual survey for mom's salary, what she should be earning. And uh, to do this, they, they broke down mom's job into 10 categories. And here they are in no particular order. She's a daycare center teacher. She's a CEO of the family. She's a psychologist. She's a cook, housekeeper, laundry machine operator, computer operator, facilities manager, janitor, and van driver. Right? That's just to name a few. And according to this 2012 uh, survey, the average stay-at-home mom should make $112,962. That's for a 40-hour work week and 54.2 overtime hours. So uh, let me give some advice uh, for the men here um, just before we dismiss our kids. Um, I did a little research. This is how I learn best. And you may want to talk uh, to your wife about this. But this was written by a mom. And, and here's, here's, the deal. here's the question. What do women want from men? And here's what this mother wrote. Every now and again, we want somebody else to pick the restaurant, arrange the play date, plan the seating, buy the tickets, do the laundry, schedule the appointment, pack the bags, balance the books, send the gift, walk the dog, fill out the forms, break the silence, lift the band, make the payment, count the calories, hold the phone, explain the joke, beat the odds, hit the ground running, win the race, and save the day. While we sleep past noon in a high thread, count she high thread count sheets and a cashmere blanket. I think, in other words, she says, we want some time off for good behavior. Okay, bridge kids, you're dismissed. <laughs> I didn't want any moms to miss that. So since, uh, t this might be a good one for moms to miss. Since today is Mother's Day, the title of the sermon is Disheartened, Dis Disappointed, and Discouraged. Exodus chapter 5, you want to turn there in your Bible or find it in your U version. This is about slaves and taskmasters and drudgery. And sometimes that may seem like motherhood. So we're going to go back to uh, the book of Exodus. We've been in a study here for the past uh, month. This is uh, chapter 5, our fifth week. And here's what's happened so far in the book of Exodus. We close the book of Genesis uh, with the story of Joseph leading his family into Egypt from Canaan, and they were taken there to survive the famine. And there are now 70 people in Joseph's family. 
Now, around 300 years passed when we come to Exodus chapter 1, and there arose in Egypt a pharaoh or a king who did not know Joseph. He didn't care about Joseph. He didn't care what Joseph had done in the past. Um, And he began to notice that something was going on in Egypt. There was a group of people who were fruitful, and they were multiplying, and they grew. And we know that they grew into the hundreds of thousands, 70 people into the hundreds of thousands. And we're going to know by Exodus 20, there are 600,000 men over the age of 20. And we're not counting women and children at this point. So um, the Pharaoh, the king, uh, was afraid. He was afraid that this group of people might rebel within his own nation. And he was afraid also that perhaps a nation, an invading nation, might come in and ally with them and uh, against the Egyptians. So he was fearful. And so he ordered that all the, he ordered the midwives to uh, kill all the male babies born. And that didn't work. And so then he ordered all the people in Egypt to throw male babies in the Nile River. And that didn't work. And then Moses was born about 350 years after Joseph brought his 70 people into the land of Egypt. And Moses' parents kept him, Jochebed, kept him and later put him in the Nile River in a little baby ark, you know, a little basket covered with pitch and it floated and she was entrusting this baby to God. Pharaoh's daughter rescued the baby, took the baby into Pharaoh's household and raised him and had him educated in Egypt for the next 40 years of his life. At some point, Moses begins to understand he has a family connection with the Hebrew people, and he kills an Egyptian when he's about 40 years old, and uh, he, he makes Pharaoh angry, and he runs for his life, and he goes to Midian, and there he meets his future wife, and they have two sons, and he's going to be a shepherd for 40 more years. Then in Exodus chapter 3, we have the burning bush experience where Moses meets God, and God says, Moses... I'm going to send you to my people, and you're going to to deliver them from out of Egypt. And um, here's what God said to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Listen to these words, verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people, Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of the slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down... God has come down to meet with uh, Moses. He's, he, he's come down. That's in this burning bush experience that Moses had. I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land into the good and spacious land, the land flowing of milk and honey. And then in verse 9, And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, this is to Moses, I'm sending you, Moses, to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And so uh, this, is, this is background. Okay, you, if you weren't here, now you know the whole story for four chapters. Now we go to chapter five, and uh, we're going to start, and there's an outline in your program, disheartened with God. This is chapter five, verses 1 through 14, disheartened with God's plan. Sometimes God's people are disheartened by God's plan. They don't like the way things get worked out. 
Verse 1, messengers for God. This is Moses and Aaron. They are the messengers. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. So at this point, Moses and Aaron are not disheartened. Because why? Well, uh, in fact, at first they're emboldened and they're empowered and they're feeling very brave to go before Pharaoh. By the way, Pharaoh uh, was viewed as a god by his people in Egypt. He was the most powerful man on earth in his day. So Moses and Aaron are going to have this encounter. And they say, let my people go, because this is what God wants. And, uh, you know, Moses has had this burning bush experience. God's talked to him. He's, he, he was um, a little nervous about it. He was a little anxious about it. He, he wasn't sure God had a good plan, but he knows God spoke. And um, remember, it was God who performed three miracles or three signs. Just, Moses, I want you to know I'm with you. You can count on this. I'm with you. And he, remember, he, get, he did three miracles. Now, how would you respond if God did three miracles just for you? Remember, he had the staff, and God said, throw it on the ground. It turned into a serpent. He picked it up, Moses, turned back into the staff, and then he told Moses to put his hand into his garment, pull it out. It, it, was, it, was like it was covered with leprosy, and he said, pull it back in, take it out, and it was healed. Just a little miracle right there for you, Moses. And then one more, Moses, take some water out of the Nile River, pour, pour it on the ground, and it will become blood. Three miracles. Okay, you think God is on the case here. So Moses and Aaron boldly approach the most powerful man on earth. And then, verse 2, opposition to God. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. That didn't go very well, did it, for Moses and Aaron? It was a short conversation. Pharaoh knows about the Lord in that he knows the Hebrew people say they worship him, but Pharaoh's not really impressed because, by the way, who are the slaves here? And these, these poor people who have no power and no authority, they're weak and they're uneducated. They're not educated with all like the Egyptians are educated. And uh, Pharaoh says this in his mind, I'm, if this is a real God, he's pretty wimpy. Because look at the situation. Look at these circumstances. Um, so the Hebrew God means nothing to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh has no intention of letting, this, letting the people go. Now, a couple things here. Remember in Exodus 1, there arose in Egypt a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And because the, the people grew so fast, he became fearful, and he wanted to kill all the males, male children. This is a different Pharaoh. That Pharaoh has died, and now there's a new Pharaoh. He's not afraid of the, of the Hebrew people. They keep growing and multiplying. He sees them as an economic asset. He can leverage them for his own kingdom. He can build his kingdom and his pyramids and his cities with them. He's not afraid. Verse 3, the messengers restate God's plan. Then they said, this is Moses and Aaron, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. For he may strike us with plagues or with sword. 
Now, I think Moses and Aaron were a little bit surprised that Pharaoh wasn't just blown away by their command and say, the Lord said, because they were feeling really confident, and then he comes back strongly and says, I'm not going to let my people go. And uh, so they come back again. And, uh, you know, everything since the burning bush had been smooth sailing, and now there's a little bit of an obstacle here with Pharaoh. So Moses and Aaron restate God's plan as if maybe Pharaoh didn't hear it the first time. And now they add the threat that God uh, may bring bring plagues on Egypt or he may bring a sword, a a kind of a judgment on the the nation, which would include the Israelites and the Egyptians. Verses 4 and 5, the opposition, Pharaoh, stiffens. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking these people from their labor? Get back to your work. So, Pharaoh... Moses, why are you interrupting my plans for building a great kingdom for myself? Who do you think you are? Why are you trying to hamper my economic assets? Why are you filling the Hebrew slaves with ideas about going into the desert for worship? Get back to work. And verse 5, then Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. And, you know, Pharaoh says, These are my people. He's the master. They're the servants. And this is a huge resource to Pharaoh, these people. This is his labor market. And the idea, Moses and Aaron, your ideas are crazy. Verses 6 through 9, the opposition, or Pharaoh, retaliates. Um, Look at verse 6. The same day Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. So this is, uh, Pharaoh takes action right away. This is the same day. I mean, it's like, who do you think you are, Moses and Aaron? And he gets right on it. He doesn't, you know, sometimes the Pharaoh might go back to his office and, you know, eh, take a note here, you know, we need to, we need to increase the work on the Hebrews and take a week, take a month, and, you know, maybe a couple of months, a new, a new decree comes out. But that same day, Pharaoh got this thing into action, and he said, these are lazy. That is why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. So Pharaoh concludes the Hebrews have too much time on their hand. They're lazy. They, they, they're using their time to, to dream and to think about ways of escape uh, to, get, to get out of the desert away from Egypt. And verse 9, make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. So Pharaoh believes, believes the best course of action is to squelch the silly ideas that Moses and Aaron have and to bring more work. Pharaoh believes the people are deceived by Moses. Here's a good question. Who is deceived? Will it be Pharaoh or will it be God's people? Verses 10 through 14, opposition to implementation. Look at verse 10. Then the slave drivers said, excuse me, then the slave slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. So now the company policy is brought out for... uh, public recognition to the brick-making brick union, and uh, here's, here's the new deal. 
Now, you're going to have to get your own straw. Before, you had to make bricks, you had this quota, you had this production schedule, and now you've got to do it, but you've got to get your own straw. And a straw was added to make the br bricks stronger. It tripled the strength of a brick. So it was kind of important to this construction process. Verse um, 11, go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people... Uh, scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use the straw. After uh, straw was cut and used, there was a stubble left, and that's the stubble was what they used for the bricks. They were pretty economic back in those days. And, the, the, and they just went to a field that had already been cut, and they used the stubble. And the, now the Hebrews have to do that work. Before, the Egyptians brought that right on the spot so that they could use it to make bricks. Now they have to, have to get their own. Verse 14 and Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Pharaoh's slave drivers are Egyptians. The Israelite overseers are Hebrews. And so the blame for the responsibility for lack of production comes on the Hebrew overseers, and they are beaten uh, by the Egyptian taskmasters. So, not fair, and this was uh, the way Pharaoh intended to accomplish his goals, and if you were a Hebrew overseer, this was not fun, and you were not in a good place. It was a very painful reality. So God's people are becoming disheartened by God's plan. Verses 15 through 21, disappointment with God's plan. The story continues, verses 15 and 16. The servants appeal uh, to the opposition. They appeal to Pharaoh, verse 15. Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh, why have you treated your servants this way? Please note, the Hebrews are calling themselves servants of Pharaoh. They used to reside there as citizens. Now they, under Pharaoh's authority, they're willing to submit and call themselves servants of Pharaoh. And um, verse 16, your servants are given no straw, yet we are told make bricks. Your servants, that's the third time they've called themselves Pharaoh's servants, are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. And so they're bringing this blame back to the Egyptian people. Probably not a good idea standing in front of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to blame the Egyptians for their lack of production. And if they really want to blame somebody, they really just needed to blame Pharaoh. And, of course, that would have been pretty costly. And so this common habit of beginning to shift the blame. Uh, verses 17 and 18, the opposition rebukes the servants. This is pretty straightforward. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are. Lazy, this is what he said to God's people. That's why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Uh, now get to work. You will, be given, you will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. So their appeal to uh, Pharaoh did not go very well. And according to Pharaoh, the problem is they're lazy. According to the Hebrews, it's the Egyptians' fault. Verses 19 through 21, the servants shift the blame. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble. Kind of, you know, sometimes guys are slow in learning, and this is, you know, they finally catch on that they're in trouble. Uh, after going to Pharaoh and after getting beaten by the Egyptians. And Pharaoh said, excuse me, 
Verse 19, the Israelite overseas realized they were in trouble, and when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required for you each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. Guess what? We've just, we've been mad at Pharaoh. That didn't work. Now we can be mad at Moses and Aaron and shift the blame to them. Because Moses and Pharaoh, it's obviously because of you that we are now in trouble with the Pharaoh. Um, verse uh, t- 21, you have made us obnoxious. This is what they say to Moses and Aaron. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in his hand to kill us. Moses and Aaron, it's because of you things have gotten worse instead of getting better. You have stirred up the wrath of Pharaoh. You have caused the Egyptians to mistreat us. You have given the Egyptians reason to treat us like animals. And we come to our third point, discouraged with God's plan, because sometimes God's people get discouraged with God's plan. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but sometimes it happens. Verse uh, 22, dissatisfaction with God. Moses returned to the Lord and said, why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? So the blame shifting continues. It goes from the the, uh, overseers blaming uh, the Egyptians, and then they blame Moses, and now Moses takes it on himself, and he's going to come back and blame God. Why, Lord, have you brought this trouble uh, on your people? It's God's fault. He's brought the trouble. And then he says, and he raises this question before God, is this why you sent me? This is failure. Is this what you had in mind for me? Moses doubts the mission of God. I suppose that's happened to us from time to time. We doubt what God is doing. We doubt what God's mission is or how it's supposed to play out in our lives. Moses doubts God's mission mission. This is not what Moses, Moses had envisioned. He thought God was going to rescue his people. He thought, I'll do what God says. I'm going to go to Pharaoh, and I'm going to be bold, and I'm going to stand up there and say, this is what the Lord says. Let my people go, and that's it, and it's done. That was Moses' plan. Let me just remind you of Exodus chapter 3, a little bit more about God's plan. And verse 18, the elders of, this is, God said to Moses, I want you to go to the elders, I want you to tell them I'm going to lead the people out of Israel, so you've got to go, Moses, and get them on your team. Verse 18, the elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. Well, they kind of did that. They didn't do exactly the way God said, but they kind of did that. Then verse 19, but I know, this is what God told him, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go. Should Moses have been surprised? I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, 
he will let you go. Moses, I think this is a timing issue. I think you're rushing God here. I think God has a plan, and you're trying to put him into your vision. So, verse 20, uh, Verse 23, ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued the people at all. God, you did not do what you said you would do. You did not rescue these people. And I'm here to witness that fact. God answers in chapter 6, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh, because of my mighty hand he will let them go, because of my mighty hand he will drive them out of his country the end and that's what the rest of the book of Exodus is about and you have to come back next week to hear the next uh, the next phase about what God is going to do apparently God is not done with his plan apparently God is right on schedule apparently obedience doesn't guarantee that life will be easy and we should consider sometimes that radical change comes with radical pain. Now, let's look at some lessons. And we're going to be done. Some lessons. Number one, sometimes obedience leads to suffering. Sometimes obeying God will lead to suffering. This is exactly what happened to Moses in Exodus 5. Moses and Aaron did exactly what God said they should do. They walked in obedience, they were bold, they, they spoke God's message before the king. It would have required a lot of courage. It made Pharaoh angry. The circumstances for God's people got worse. You know what? The same is going to be true in your life sometimes. Sometimes obedience will lead to suffering. Sometimes speaking for God may cause you to be less popular. Sometimes speaking for God uh, or sometimes making moral choices may cause you to lose friends. Sometimes it may cause someone to get angry at you. The Pharaoh got angry. So many times Christians won't stand up for God because they fear the anger of someone. So sometimes obedience leads to suffering and we shouldn't be surprised. And... I, I read this uh, quote this week about, um, you know, we spend so much time and so much effort in our education for people to be successful, but we spend very little time teaching people to handle difficulty and failure. Because life has a lot of that stuff. It doesn't mean it's bad, it's just reality. Second lesson here, God's presence does not always lead to the removal of problems. Remember Exodus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, when when Moses was at the burning bush, Moses said, "Ah, I don't know if I can do this, Lord. And he said, Moses, I will be with you. I I will be with your speech. I will be with you all of the way. Moses, you can count on me. I will be with you. And Moses, God has been present with Moses every step so far. And yet, God's people haven't been rescued yet. You know what? We can expect the same thing. There are going to be times when, uh, you know, we have the presence of God. If you're a follower of Christ, 
you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and you have the presence of God in your life. And just because God said he would be with you and he would never forsake you doesn't mean problems go away. Third lesson. Be careful about writing a script for God to work out his will in your life. Be careful about writing a script for God. Moses began to develop his own ideas on how God should deliver his people, how God was going to rescue the Hebrews. And God did not follow through with Moses' picture of what should happen. The all-knowing, the all-wise God who is sovereign over the universe had a bigger plan that was going to accomplish more. Moses didn't see it. Moses wasn't ready for it. He would do it, God would do it in his time, in his way. That's the beauty of we have the Old Testament to look back to learn about God and how he works and how he's worked in the past and who he said he is and uh, just understanding so that we know him better. Fourthly, be, uh, be, be careful about sitting in judgment over God. Be careful about sitting in judgment over God. Moses reflected on what he perceived to be God's failure to rescue his people. And Moses was very disappointed with God. By, by the way, it's okay to express your disappointment with God. A lot of, a lot of writers in scriptures, the psalmist, they express disappointment with God. It's okay to be honest with God. Be careful about sitting in judgment on God. Be careful about making yourself God as if he doesn't know what he's doing and somehow you do. So, uh, in fact, if you uh, become his judge, that's arrogant and prideful. Number five, how you respond to God in difficult circumstances show your level of spiritual maturity. How you respond to God in difficult circumstances shows your level of spiritual maturity. So what do you think God wanted from Moses? God is patient with Moses. He told Moses what he wanted him to do. Moses, I'm going to send you. And he sort of let Moses uh, complain, and he let uh, Moses express his concerns, and he just would continue to be patient with Moses. And Moses, he promised Moses, I'm going to do this, and we're, we're going to rescue my people. What, what did God want for Moses? God wanted Moses to trust him. Moses, I want you to take me at your word. I want you to count on me. Stop trying to figure this out on your own. I want you to trust me. And what does God want from us? He wants us to trust him. Um, Humanly, Moses or the Hebrews could not figure out God's plan. They couldn't figure out how God was going to rescue them. And so they just got frustrated. Uh, And complaining was easy. To trust God, you have to know him well enough to believe what he says. Moses and God's people are going to be on the journey in the book of Exodus, and they're going to learn to know more about God. They're going to learn how God works and how he communicates and how he operates. And as that happens, they're going to grow in their trust for him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Um... 
So how we respond to God in difficult circumstances is also gonna show us about our own spiritual maturity, how we live. And God wants us to trust him. God wants us to trust him with our family, with our parenting. God wants us to trust him with our marriage. He wants us to trust him with our finances, with our careers, with our futures. Who's gonna be my lifetime partner? Who's gonna be my mate? Uh, he, he wants us to trust him with his friend, friendship and even wants you students to trust him with your schoolwork this week. Last one, number six, last one. Fight discouragement, despair, and suffering by focusing on the promises of God. God answers Moses with a reminder. All of this turmoil that Moses is in, all this despair that God's people face, and God just comes back and says, Moses, I'm gonna keep my promise. Is that enough? Is that enough for you? I'm gonna be with you, Moses. Is that enough? Moses, you can count on me, will you? Is that enough? Go to the promises of God. Fight discouragement, despair, and suffering. You know, parenting has discouragement and despair and disappointment because, you know, there are things that we would like to do for our kids, but our kids have to do them for themselves, and sometimes they make wrong choices. We we can't predict what their health is going to be like. Uh, We can't predict who they're going to pick for a mate or something. Sometimes it's difficult to be a parent. And God says, I'm going to be with you. You can trust me. You can count on me. And we just want to fix problems. And we only like God when he fixes the problems the way we like him to fix them. So fight discouragement, despair, and suffering by focusing on the promises of God. Um, God fulfills his promises. And I want you to know, you can absolutely trust him. Now, sometimes Christians say they believe, they trust God. They say, I believe that God is in control. I believe that God is in charge of the universe. But sometimes we live like train wrecks. Emotionally, we're just all over the place. God says, trust me. You can count on me. So, Exodus chapter 5. That's it. I'd like us to stand, and we're going to pray. And those of you who have been sitting a long time are going to be able to leave this room. Let me pray. Gracious God, we just uh, we thank you for uh, the book of Exodus. And Lord, today there's just a lot of kind of doom and gloom and discouragement that happens to God's people. And yet there's a bigger picture happening. And you have a plan and you're gonna work and you're gonna display your marvelous power and you want God's people to wait on you. Father, that's my prayer for us, that we would trust you even when the circumstances in our lives are seem crazy, are out of control, that you're gonna work, that you're gonna fulfill your promises that you're going to bring peace in our hearts, that you're going to bring comfort to our souls, that you're going to answer prayer, that you're going to accomplish all of your plans throughout eternity. And they are good. And they are good for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.